I want to take you into Mark's gospel and we're going to go into Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read to you uh, from verse 32, although I don't want to read to you the entire passage up front as we normally would. But we are to orientate you with where we are at this particular moment in the gospels. We are um, at the last really the last 12 to 15 hours before Jesus is about to be crucified. And you'll know that he spent the week in Jerusalem prior to this uh, preaching, but also riling up the authorities and the very uh, many people who'd become opponents to him in these recent days, such that they hated him, such that they wanted to destroy him. And he knew this, and he knew that it was part of his destiny and his journey in order to fulfill um, his destiny to be our savior, to die in our place. He's just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. Uh, the 13 of them have sat around the table. They've eaten the lamb. They've drunk wine. And he's inaugurated the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, the communion meal that we take as a remembrance of his death. He said, look, eat this bread, drink this wine forever in remembrance of me. And as the night's drawn on, and it's well past midnight at this point, They've ended their celebrations and they've trekked out of the city walls across a small valley outside Jerusalem. And they trekked up the hill and into a little garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an olive grove and in the darkness and the coldness they're going to sleep there overnight. That's the plan at least, although Jesus knows that his end is drawing near and the time of his arrest is approaching. And so we find them there in this kind of sullen, dark uh, moment in the mind and the life of Christ when he is fully aware, fully anticipating what is about to happen to him and the destiny that he has to walk and the steps that he has to take over the coming hours as he'll be faced trial and then the brutal execution as he is whipped and scourged and then nailed to a wooden cross and hung there to asphyxiate and to it with, with a suffocating pressure upon his lungs and as the blood will drain from his body and eventually his life will give way and a, and a soldier will confirm it with a spear that will be run up through his side and into his heart. And all of this is about to take place and Jesus knows. He knows full well in the spirit and by a kind of prophetic knowledge that this is his destiny and this is what's about to happen. And so we find him preparing for that. And we need to read these verses and understand this story um, and be impacted by it. Now, I want to begin, though, by asking this question. What do you think is the most important message that the world needs to hear? And I imagine that all of us would have different, um, if we could sum it up to a single phrase, everyone would have a different answer to that question, that what they think is the most pressing, the most important, the most urgent thing that the world needs to hear at a time like this. And For some, it would be concerning the state of our planet. For some, con concerning the state of our human relations, and perhaps of our race relations. For some, it's all about this virus that's affecting us right now. But I, I think that one of the most important statements that's ever been uttered on human lips and which has an abiding importance and has from, from the time it was stated right until now was said by Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, when his, and this really captures his entire message and his entire reason for living. He said this, these words, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a very famous statement in the scriptures. And I, the reason why I think it's the most important and urgent thing that we could ever understand is partly because of its content. 
If you grasp the meaning of that statement of what John was saying about his cousin Jesus, then you really have understood Christian theology. And it's a very deep statement, though it's simple on its surface. But also because of the verb, what the invitation is, because of what the command is in, that, in the language that John the Baptist used. He said this word, behold, which means to look, but more than to look, it means to hold in your attention, to concentrate, to think about to understand and to truly perceive. And it was an invitation to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and to understand Him. And the Scriptures show us that when a person engages with Jesus in this way, when they look at Him, when they behold Him, the power of Christ is such that His, his, his image, His likeness, His character, His love... Who he is as a person begins to burn itself into your heart and bring about change. And you can see this in the stories of the, gospel, of the, of the New Testament. I think particularly of the man Paul, who um, was a persecutor of the church. He would travel around trying to arrest and, and kill Christians until he beheld Jesus. And he says this about those moments when he saw Christ. He's describing Jesus' appearances after his resurrection and how he appeared to the 12 apostles and various others. And then he says this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If you want to understand the transforming work of God in the life of the apostle Paul, you have to understand what he says there. That when he saw Jesus, the blazing power and purity and dignity and worthiness of Jesus was imprinted on his own soul. And Paul was transformed in an instant from being a persecutor of the church to being one who then sought to live his life in surrender, in full surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And similarly, when he's writing to Christians years later, he says this, he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. In other words, seeing Jesus. It's that same word, beholding. To holding in your gaze, gazing upon, understanding, comprehending. He says, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, the reason why I, I'm saying this, all of this before we read our passage is because I think that to behold is one of the very things that we find most difficult in our day and age. Our attention is a precious commodity and it is also a battleground and so we're constantly distracted. To really behold Christ means to bring everything that you are, your spirit, soul and um, your body into, into a state of concentration upon him and yet this is the very thing that we find difficult to do because of these distractions, because also we are bombarded with messages all day long and we've, we've learned to grow up a, a measure of resilience not least because we live in the age of capitalism and the age of marketing everything is competing for our attention everything is telling us that no this is the most important thing that you could hear today and so we build up a sense of protection we become jaded with all the false promises and we're just tired and unable to really fix our minds and our hearts upon any one thing for any length of time and this is why i believe to really see spiritual things, you need a work of the Holy Spirit upon your heart and mind. I don't expect people to understand Jesus with a superficial glance or a sideways kind of suspicious glare. The only way to really understand Jesus is to look at him face to face, to really come to grips with him. 
and as you behold him, you're changed. Now, to behold sounds like the most impractical thing you can do. I know, and I'm, today as we read this passage, this is literally all we're doing. We don't come away with a bunch of life hacks and practical takeaways of the ways in which Jesus wants you to change. That's not the purpose of what we're doing today. But at the same time, I think to truly behold is the most practical, life-changing thing that you can do. The Gospels show us, the Bible teaches us again and again that when you gaze upon God, when you look at Him, your life is changed. And it's in that vein that I want to invite you to consider Jesus with new eyes today. When John said those words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the different things you could see when you're seeing him. You could see something of his glory and certainly to see the glory of Christ is to to experience a captivation with him that causes you to be disillusioned with all the all the reflective glory that we see in this world, the things of this world, created things that so easily consume our attention. We might, be, we might behold his purity. And to, to see Christ's purity is to be changed by the integrity of a man who loves you with an intensity and a perfect love that means to do you good, such that you trust him unlike any other leader that you've ever encountered in this world. Or you might see something else like his wisdom and so want to be changed by his teaching. But today we're doing a more difficult thing. I'm I'm saying all this to prepare you, really. Today we're doing something a little bit more difficult, which is that we're called to behold the sorrows of Christ. And the reason why I think this is so important is partly because of what it says about Jesus in that prophetic passage from seven centuries before he was born, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, where Isaiah describes him in this way. He says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When you look upon somebody who is overwhelmed with sorrow, the first thing you want to do is to divert your gaze because sorrow is a contagious thing. When you are in the presence of someone who's overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, it rubs off on you and there's an urge inside to get away from under that influence. And so, What I'm inviting you to do today is not something easy. It says here in the next verse that as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed esteemed him not. In other words, as people saw the sorrow of Jesus, they didn't want to look upon it. But what I'm trying to underline for you, friends, is that to look at the sorrows of Christ is not only part of Christian devotion, but it is part of the transforming work that God wants to affect in your life. We're going to read this passage in sections, and at each point we're going to pause and meditate upon the sorrows of Christ in order to truly understand what's going on here in this garden. And we're going to begin, first of all, by looking at his sorrows in terms of him bearing the sorrow of the curse. Now, what do I mean? I want to explain this to you as we read these first verses. Mark 14, 32, it says this, They went to a place called Gethsemane, this olive garden. It's the middle of the night, don't forget. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, 
Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He means the cup of judgment that he's about to experience on the cross. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, as I said to you just now, I think the first sorrow that we encounter here is the sorrow of the curse. And let me explain to you what I mean. One of the things that people find odd about the emotions of Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane is the fact that he is about to face death and it appears as though he's facing death with more distress and agony of soul than many who have died um, through history who have faced death more courageously or with more calmness or more resilience or courage. And commentators have often pointed this out and said, look, why is it that Christ is experiencing? They've asked this question, why is it that he is experiencing such an agony? And I, I know of stories, I can, you know, even among, in the Christian church, we know of stories of uh, men and women who faced death with immense courage. And one of the most famous of which was the story of Latimer, Hugh, Hugh Latimer and his friend Nicholas Ridley, uh, both preachers and academics, who were burned at the stake in the center of the city of Oxford here in England when the bloody Queen Mary was on the throne. And as, they, as the fire was being lit under their feet... Hugh Latimer kind of turned his head and spoke to his friend uh, Ridley behind him and, and said these words. He said, play the man, Master Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And it's true that, that what was lit that day, when their bodies were lit, what was lit that day was a witness to Christian truth which actually has changed the nation for the five centuries since or at least had an impact and it's never been snuffed out. And you think these men were motivated by the purpose of their sacrifice such that they felt courage in that moment not to face death with terror or anguish of soul. And the question is, why is this not true of Christ? One thing you can say, of course, is that the gospel accounts are very honest. There's no reason to invent this about the death of our Saviour. But the main reason that we need to come to grips with is what I'm describing for you here. That I think you have to see what's happening here as more than, it's not merely a fear of death or a fear of the physical torture that he's about to experience in the hours that are in front of him. That what's really going on here is something more like the, an emotional torture, an anguish that only makes sense when you understand what Christ was doing for us. Why is he dis deep, so deeply distressed? And the answer is what we're told elsewhere in the New Testament, that as he approaches the cross, Christ is bearing upon himself the weight of the curse. Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. A curse is the opposite of blessing. It means the absence of joy, the ab absence of happiness, the absence of anything good. And Jesus is experiencing the weight of the curse. Now, what do I mean by that? The Bible shows us that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, they opened a door, as it were, for suffering and evil to enter into the creation of God. And it means that in Christian understanding, 
every distress that you experience in life, every suffering, every agony of soul, every grief, every disappointment, everything that's wrong in life is ultimately rooted in the problem of sin. Now, sometimes that affects us very directly. We do wrong and we, we experience the recompense for our sin or we hurt others. They experience pain on account of our sin. Sometimes it's very direct, but more often it's indirect. It's the effects, the poisoning, toxic effects of the curse that has affected all of God's creation. You can think of it like this. That when Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, it's like the serpent bit. And the serpent's poison seeped not only into them as humans, but also then it seeped into the whole system, the entirety of creation. Everything was affected by this poison. It became toxic and full of suffering and evil and agony and pain. And then when we see Jesus as our Savior coming to undo the effects of sin and undo the effects of the curse, what are we seeing? It's like he's um, drawing the poison out of the creation into himself. That's what it means when it says that he became a curse for us. One of the writers that I consulted about this, a man called James Edwards, put it like this. He said, nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Neither the laments of the Psalms, nor the broken heart of Abraham as he prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac, nor David's grief at the death of his son Absalom. What he's saying is this, that we encounter suffering all through Scripture. But suffering generally that we encounter is limited in its scope. It's, it's narrow. It's concerning one particular grief or sorrow. But what we're seeing here is Jesus bearing upon his shoulders and upon his soul all of the sadness, all of the evil, all of the poison of the way that sin has affected the entire system, everything. The reason why I'm drawing your attention to this, you know, ask the question, why is it that we need to contemplate this? Why is it that we need to behold the Lamb of God and look at him in his sorrow here? And the answer is because what you're seeing here is you're seeing Jesus experiencing a horror of suffering that you and I deserve but will never taste because of his goodness for, to us. He's experiencing what you and I would experience if we were to face the judgment seat without the saving grace of God in our lives. He's experiencing what you and I would experience if we were to be banished away from the presence of God and into hell. Another writer, William Hendrickson, put it like this. He said, Jesus suffered the full equivalent of that which his people would have suffered if no one had died in their stead. To state it differently, hell, as it were, came to him in Gethsemane and on Golgotha, the place where he was crucified. And he descended into it, experiencing to the full its terrors. One of the oldest creeds that the church and Christians recite is the Apostles' Creed. And it says one line in there, he descended into hell. People have often deliberated and questioned, what does it mean when it says that? And I think that we're getting the answer here in these pages. It's like Jesus is, is, is entering into the emotional experience of hell and the torture and the torment of it as he bears the curse of sin upon himself, a man of sorrows, the sorrow of the curse. 
I want to read on and we'll encounter another sorrow, which is the sorrow of isolation. It says in verse 37, And he came and found them sleeping. Remember, he's gone off to pray and he's left Peter, James and John and said, I want and, and for them to pray also. And it says, He came and found them sleeping and he said to, to Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Or are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When you face times of suffering in life, what is it that you most need in those moments? And without question, from the experiences that I've had of dark days and dark moments, I would say that it is the combination of the comfort of God and of friends, because God gives us people to minister to us in sorrow, gives us people to minister uh, kindness and compassion and tenderness and empathy to us in a moment of grief or of darkness. And this is what Jesus needs in this this moment as he's entering into hell as it were he calls out to God in prayer but he also looks to his closest friends to Peter James and John and he depends upon them to give him the support that he needs as he is about to endure the things that he will endure for your sake and for mine and it becomes almost farcical as you see what's going on here how he leaves them to pray and they fall asleep now, admittedly, they've had a big meal. They've probably had a few glasses of wine. They're tired. It's the middle of the night. It's the early hours of the morning. But they fall asleep. And he challenges them and rebukes them and says, Watch and pray. It's a word to all of us that there are seasons in life when the only thing that will get you through is to watch and pray. But they don't do it. And he comes back and three times he finds them having fallen asleep again. And you look at this and you, you begin to realize that what Jesus is experiencing here in the Garden of Gethsemane is a total, total, complete isolation. That he is cut off from meaningful support and relationship with all the people that he most depended upon in life. This is one of his sorrows. Now, I think one of the reasons why we need to contemplate this is because it, it leads us even more to, to, to adore and to love Jesus because we see this extraordinary contrast between him and humanity represented there by Peter, James and John but they only represent us the way that we fail. Jesus diagnoses their problem in this way when he says the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And there is not a person alive who doesn't understand exactly what Christ meant by that. That you can desire one thing. You can want to do the right thing. You can have good desires in your heart, even desires that are pure and noble and drawn potentially to the things of God. But you find in yourself a resistance to do those things, that the flesh is weak and that you stumble and fall and crash. And that you find yourself disappointed with your own life. 
with your own performance, as it were. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So as Jesus says that to these men, I read this and see this as a a convicting word about my own failure. About the fact that even if I want to be absolutely devoted to Jesus, the spirit is willing. Yet in the day to day, I find that the flesh is weak. That my love is changeable. That my devotion is changeable. That my obedience is changeable. And you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Which is why when we see ourselves in this moment in the garden, what we see is the contrast between our failure, represented for us by these three men, and the extraordinary dignity and uniqueness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because if they represent us, Jesus is unique. He alone is the one about whom it can be said that not only was his spirit willing, but he also was able to bring his flesh fully into submission and in line with his own will. And not only with his own will, but as he prays, in line with the will of God. Because he keeps saying, not my will, but your will be done. And he brings his entire being into obedience, into devotion to the Father. And so I read about the sorrow of Christ in his isolation here. And I, it causes me to want to worship him because I see in this his total uniqueness as a human. That he's not like us in the sense that we're so flawed, we're so prone to failure. But Jesus is not. And it makes me worship in this also that I see his mercy is, is more amplified and exaggerated and displayed in the fact that even though... The best men, those men who love him the most, are failing him in this moment, yet he's still willing to die for them. And he didn't just die for them, he died for the worst of us. We see the sorrow of his isolation. Let's read on. From verse 43, it says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief of priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, The betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we've considered up to now the sorrow of Jesus in the sorrow of the curse and the sorrow of isolation. But here now we see the sorrow of betrayal. I, you know, as you contemplate what's going on here, I think it's hard to imagine a more vile act than the act which Judas perpetrates against Jesus here. And it's all the more vile because you see all the signs of his intimacy and closeness with Jesus. You consider that he knew exactly where Jesus was staying. Why? Because they'd stayed there many times before. He was part of Jesus in a circle. Mark reminds us that he's Judas, one of the twelve. This is no ordinary man who hates Christ. This is Judas, one of his close friends. You see his intimacy in that he addresses him with this term of respect and also of love when he says rabbi, which means my teacher. It's not a word that he had to use. It's a word that he chooses to use. And he calls him my teacher as he addresses him. But most of all, you see it in this. 
So he greets him with a kiss. And the commentators will tell us that this is not an ordinary kiss because the Greek word that's used here by Mark is not the, the normal word for kiss. It's the intensified version. And one translator said it ought to be translated a prolonged kiss. And we're talking about a greeting on the cheek here, but he holds Jesus to his lips. He holds his cheek to his lips and kisses him for a, a length of time as though to exaggerate um, his devotion and affection for him at the very same time that he is betraying him by the sign of the kiss. And you think there's something so vile about what is going on here. One man wrote this. He said, it's the kind of kiss one gives to someone one loves. And Judas's kiss drips with horror. For it is a calloused prostitution of one of humanity's most sacred symbols. He's prostituting the symbol of the kiss, which is a symbol of affection and of union. More than that, I think, though. Judas has prostituted his entire life at this point because the reason he's betraying Christ is for financial gain, for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is experiencing here the sorrow of betrayal. Now ask yourself, why is it that we find this so repugnant, such that Judas' name has gone down in history as synonymous with betrayal? None of you would name a son Judas, would you, for this very reason? It's, it's, a, it's a name which captures and evokes the darkness of human capacity to betray even those we love. And I think the reason why we're so turned off by it is partly because we hate betrayal, partly because we hate two-facedness. If anyone's ever stabbed you in the back... You know the pain of giving your trust to someone for them only to, to, um, to trample all over it. And I think that's part of the reason. But I think the other reason why we find this so despicable is because we see this tendency in our own hearts. What is this? This is just hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy of professing love. Rabbi, the long kiss on the cheek. At the very same time, doing something which you know is evil. And as I was thinking about this reality of the hypocrisy that Judas is perpetrating about Jesus, Jude, uh, against Jesus, the thought struck me, of course, that this is only a hypocrisy which a follower can perpetrate. An atheist cannot be a hypocrite. A devotee to another religion cannot be a hypocrite. The only one who can be a hypocrite is the professing believer the one who says, I follow Jesus, and says it with their lips, but then goes and does something which denies him like Judas does on this particular occasion. And I, I find that sobering. I find that a thought worth wrestling with and worth, med worth meditating upon because it exposes this capacity within the human heart, within me, within you, to say one thing, to, to be at church, to express devotion, to express love to Jesus, while at the same time knowing that we are betraying him by our acts. And so Jesus experiences the sorrow of betrayal. One of the things that, that he is bearing as he goes to the cross. Let me show you another thing here. He experiences the sorrow of injustice. In verse 48, it says, And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's quite possible that there were hundreds of men who'd shown up for this 
arrest of Jesus because we're told that there was a cohort of soldiers which was hundreds in the Roman system. And they come with weapons as well as something of a posse, a lynch mob who've come with clubs. And they've come in the middle of the night. They've come in the dead of night when everybody is now asleep, passed out from their feasting at the Passover meal. And Jesus points out the incongruity of what is going on here, that he's been in the temple day after day in the daylight uh, preaching and teaching and they've left him alone, they haven't touched him. What is happening here is happening in the dark. Why in the dark? Well, for the simple reason that this is an evil, an unjust moment. The most evil and the most unjust moment that has ever taken place in the history of the world, I say without hesitation, because never has a more innocent man been arrested and put on trial and crucified more unjustly than in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it all takes place as he shows us in the dark. How do we understand this? Well, at the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus described our human condition like this. And he said, this is the judgment. The light, he's speaking of himself, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. What Jesus is showing here is that the darkest things we do are the things that we we try and keep in the dark, that we try and keep hidden and obscured and away from the gaze of God in particular. I'm not just talking here of secret sins, but I'm talking about the state of the human heart, how we can love darkness because we can seek to flee away from the light of God and His presence. And this is what's going on on this particular night. It is literally the middle of the night. It is dark. And these men who could have arrested Him in the day in an open way, if they were not so ashamed and so unsure of their own act, do so at night instead. And yet it had to be this way. Because here Jesus, who calls Himself again and again the light of the world, Jesus has to be swallowed up by darkness, and which is why the arrest and the injustice of it is all taking place in the dark and at night. He's being swallowed up by darkness in order to free us who are captive to darkness and deliver us into the light. He had to experience, in other words, the injustice of the evil of this moment and the sorrow of that injustice in order that we would escape the justice of God. That as our dark sins are brought into the light and we ought to, be, ought to be put on trial, ought to be executed, ought to experience the torment of hell for the things that we have done, Christ instead delivers us from that justice and instead gives us his grace and his mercy. And let me bring you to the final sorrow of Christ here. It is a sorrow of abandonment. It says in verse 50, And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is, of course, the fulfillment of what Jesus has already said to his disciples on, during their Passover meal when he says that you will all betray me. One of the puzzles that people have re- uh, wrestled with over the centuries is this question of why does Mark mention this odd incident of a young man wearing a linen garment and in the tussle 
the garment being ripped off him as he, as he tries to wrench himself free from the mob and runs away into the cold night naked. Why does Mark mention this? One of the suggestions that was given by the, the early church, very early on in church history, and which has lived on because I think it is true, is that Mark is speaking here about himself. We know that Mark is Peter's companion as he writes this gospel a, couple of, a few decades later. But no doubt he was a young man there on that night, one of the sort of wider followers of Jesus, those who were in his broader group of disciples. And he is sharing with us a little moment of autobiography. But it has the force of a confession, doesn't it? Why would he share this with us? And I think the answer is because he's confessing. He's saying, I left him. I also fled. Just like everyone else, I abandoned the master on the moment when he most needed me, when I ought to have stood with him, when I ought to have identified with him, I also ran away. And this is what is so astoundingly beautiful about these scripture accounts of the death of Jesus, is that all of the eyewitnesses, who were then the leaders of the church, all of them are very open about their own failing. They're very open about the fact that they did not have the courage, the guts, to stand with Christ on that night. They're totally honest about their own selfishness, their own self-serving desire to find safety and security when they were felt under threat and they felt frightened. And they say it as a confession. They tell us these stories because they're true. They don't try to exalt themselves and portray themselves as great courageous men who, who did what was right when it was needed. The very opposite is true. They tell us honestly, we left him, we fled. It had to be this way. It was only Christ who could bear our sin on the cross. It was only Christ who could die in our stead. And we can see here that every other human would fail and did fail because no one else could endure what Christ endured that night, could face what he would face when he would go into that trial and when he would be brutally executed and descend into death. Christ had to go alone. He had to be abandoned. I started by underlining for you why I think it's important for us to think about a passage like this and the sorrows of Christ and told you that our calling is sometimes just to behold him. And I want to just underline that for you as I close, that there are two reasons why I think this is so vital that we do this. The first reason is so that you can understand what it is that he spared you from. As you see Jesus being battered by sorrow after sorrow of the curse and of isolation, of betrayal and then injustice and then abandonment and descending more and more into the darkness of what he's about to experience, you're staring hell in the face. And it ought to remind us that this is the very things that Christ has saved us from. And of course, we still experience sorrows in this life. We still have tasters, but these tasters are only tasters. They're not the full impact. They're not the full weight. They're not the full crushing weight of the curse which Jesus took upon himself for us. 
And I think that that can have the effect as you contemplate the sorrows of Jesus, the sorrows of the Son of Man, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief as he's described. As you contemplate this, it can have the effect of liberating you from your misery, of liberating you from your self-pity, of liberating you from the darkness that you're in, because you realize that Christ has spared you from the worst that would be yet to come if you were to be left without his saving power. I also would remind you of this, that the reason why we're called to behold Jesus in this moment is so that we'll be led to adoration. What we've read today, as we've encountered Jesus in a moment of unbearable pain, what we've seen is the thing which is so unique about the Christian faith. We worship a Savior who is mighty without question, but we worship a Savior who, in his greatest act for us, suffered. He was described as the suffering servant who came to serve us and to serve us most perfectly by his suffering on our behalf. And this is what's so unique about the Christian faith. At the heart of every other faith, there may be heroic figures who are admired for their virtues, for their courage, for their dignity, for their purity, for whatever else that they stand for. But at the heart of the Christian faith, we worship someone who is crucified. And this has brought to bear an unbelievable impact upon the mind and imagination of the Christian church ever since. What does it do to us to adore a saviour who suffered? And I think the answer is partly negative in that it destroys our self-serving, pleasure-seeking, wicked and selfish instincts. Because you cannot worship a saviour like this and then go off and live a selfish life. You can't adore someone who suffered on your behalf and then merely trample all over it by going off and, and living a corrupted life. It destroys the idols that, that drive us when we contemplate Christ and his sorrow. But also, it creates in us a purity of heart. When we see, when the model for us is someone who suffered, it shows us what Christian virtue is, to lay your life down, to take upon yourself the burdens of others, to seek as far as God calls you to walk in the steps of Jesus and to bear a cross. This is the life that Christians are called to and it's one of the reasons why Christianity is such a unique and powerful dynamic force in the world to bring about change. And so, friends, as we close, and I'm going to invite Ramsey and Naomi to come and lead us in a response of worship. As we close, the only thing that we can do now is to turn our hearts in adoration to Jesus. We're just invited to behold, to look upon, to contemplate, to think about, to meditate on, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
Jesus, we acknowledge. And see and understand something of the sorrow of what you faced that night. We've all tasted sorrow. But Lord, we thank you that you went into the very darkness, into the very pit of hell for us. Lord Jesus, I want to ask that as we behold you, the man of sorrows, that your matchless sacrifice will liberate us from the darkness of this world, from the sorrows that we're encountering now, that we'll understand they're temporary, that we don't have to face the worst. You'll liberate us from the sins which cling to us because we acknowledge just how incongruous they are with the worship of just such a Savior. But most of all, just bring us to your feet in worship, we pray today. Help us to love and adore you, Lord. To say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Amen.